Hey everybody, welcome to the very first episode of the Crime Weirdos podcast. I'm your host, Farley. And I'm Austin. Today we're going to talk about a terrifying unsolved case. And anyone that knows me knows I hate unsolved cases. They make me want to scream. I I try to solve solve cases in my head and I can't. And it drives me crazy. Anyway, this is the story of the Icebox Murders. It's the afternoon of June 23rd, 1965. Marvin Martin places a phone call to the Houston Police Department requesting a welfare check for his elderly aunt and uncle, Fred and Edwina Rogers. He'd been trying to reach them for days now, to no avail. After more than several unanswered phone calls, an unsuccessful trip to the Rogers home, and a phone call from Edwina's co-worker stating that Edwina had missed their Monday sales meeting, Marvin's concerns grew to full-blown worry. His uncle Fred, an 81-year-old retired real estate agent with a history of gambling, and Aunt Edwina, a 79-year-old sales rep, are said to be average people with seemingly normal lives, except for the fact that they share nothing less than a toxic relationship with each other. Neighbors of the couple state that Fred and Edwina argue loudly and often, so much so that neighbors were moving away because of this. So this is obviously a big problem. Yeah. Like, they don't get along. Now, not only are they not close with each other, they haven't remained close to their family members. Many relatives say they don't know much about the couple at all. As evening rolls around, with this information in mind, Captain Charles Bullock, along with his partner, L.M. Barda, follow up on Marvin's call from earlier in the day. They head to check up on the Rogers, believing they're just going to find them safe and sound at home, just not wanting to be bothered. But upon arriving at the Little Brick home, 1815 Driscoll Street, the officers immediately feel that something is a little off. The yard is a mess and unkept. The family car is parked in the driveway, seemingly awaiting repairs. Piles of newspapers and mail set untouched on the front step, and the front door is bolted shut from the inside and will not budge. So this is uh, this is when the officers wind around to the backside of the house, and it's instantly clear to them that someone doesn't want them using the back door either. It's barricaded with flower pots, but this does not stop Bullock and Barda. They move the flower pots aside, and with force and determination, they manage to break in through the back door. Bullock begins his search in the kitchen as Barda moves through the rest of the home. And as Bullock makes his way around the vacant room, he notices uneaten food on the dining table and dishes stacked in the sink. He can't help but feel the whole scene just doesn't seem right. It's almost as if Fred and Edwina had just gotten up in the middle of their meal and walked out. Unsure of what led him here, he stands in front of the fridge now. It appears to be just an ordinary fridge, nothing too crazy. He opens the door and quickly examines its contents, noting each shelf is stacked full of what appears to be hog meat, which he believes had been picked up from the butcher recently. Bullock thinks to himself, this meat will spoil with no one here to cook it. What a shame that would be. But other than the potential waste of meat, all seems well inside the fridge. But just as Bullock begins to shut the door, his heart stops beating. Two lifeless eyes stare at him through the glass vegetable drawer at the bottom of the fridge. He slams the fridge shut and then opens it again, thinking that this has to be a hallucination. But no. 
the head is still there. This is indeed real. And now comes the disturbing realization that this meat may not be hog meat after all. With shock flooding his veins, Bullock reunites with Barda to tell him what he found. They run from the house and call for backup right away. And if I were them, I would definitely run too. So when the other officers arrive, Bullock's fear is confirmed. The meat inside the refrigerator is not hog meat, but instead the remains of Fred and Edwina Rogers. Detectives sweep through the home, trying to collect as much evidence as possible. They start first in Fred's bedroom. Though Fred and Edwina had been married for many years, they hadn't shared a bedroom in a very long time. Fred's room is an absolute disaster. A twin bed and day bed take up space in the room, but only the day bed appears slept in. The sheets are rumpled and the comforter is pulled down. Clothes and papers are strewn around and drawers pulled from the dresser lie on the floor. The mess leads detectives to believe someone had been looking for something in this room or had attempted to stage it to look like a robbery. Or maybe Fred was just not good at housekeeping. Edwina's room is almost an exact replica of Fred's, aside from having only one bed in her room. Empty drawers line the floors, papers and clothes are littered throughout. Detectives still can't determine whether someone is trying to throw them off or if items had actually been stolen from the Rogers home. After two thorough sweeps through the main area of the first floor, they notice a bloody handprint on the stairs. And inside a toolbox beside the stairs is a hammer covered with blood and tissue. So it's immediately clear to them that this hammer had been used in the murders. Right. Now, in the tub of the master bathroom, they see a residue that indicates a body had been placed there. They don't see any obvious signs a murder had taken place here, though. A storage closet nearby harbors buckets of disinfectant and other cleaning supplies. The pungent smell of bleach still lingers here from rang out rags that were just hanging around the room. As darkness falls on Houston, groups of people along with the press gather around the Rogers home, and the search moves to the attic. Since the light in the attic no longer works, the hunched-over detectives use flashlights to explore the cramped space. In the glow of the light, they see a hot plate beside the bed, a dresser, and a small TV. Nothing looks too out of the ordinary. But it's immediately clear that someone had been living in this attic. Upon further investigation, though, they find a recently fired 22 caliber pistol and blood on the keyhole of the attic door. They also recover a straight blade and a handsaw that they believe were used to cut up Fred and Edwina's bodies. Inside the attic closet was an array of different musical instruments and documents that didn't belong to either victim. So now, you know, you've got to be wondering who's staying in this attic. Yeah. All the evidence is pointing to them. Mm-hmm. As detectives continue to search the home, the medical examiner's assistant unloads body parts onto a black tarp spread out on the kitchen floor. And as he's, like, going through all the body parts, he finds another head, which is determined to be Fred's head. So now they have both Edwina and Fred's head. We know they're both dead at this point. Yeah. Now, the discovery of Fred's head was surprisingly more gruesome than the initial discovery of Edwina's because his head was completely bashed in and his eyes were gouged out. Now, with suspicions that the master bathroom may be where the bodies were kept, crime scene investigators use luminol to find traces of blood. And boy, do they find it. Though the murderer did a spectacular job cleaning up after themselves, the luminol reveals a disturbing scene. Blood is spattered on the walls, all over the tub, and the floor, and they find more than a little blood inside the toilet, leading to the belief that somebody had flushed some of the body parts down the toilet. 
Yeah. Wow. They confirmed that the bathroom had been used as something like a storage room for the bodies as the killer drained them and prepared them there for dismemberment. The luminol also shows the trail of blood from the bathroom through the hall into the kitchen where the bodies had been dragged. As investigators removed the plastic happy birthday table cover from the dining table, they reveal cuts throughout the tabletop, and luminol paints the picture of a grisly, bloody scene. The table had been used as a surgical table or operation table, if you will. (laughs) With the success of the luminol, they decide to use it in other areas of the house. This is when they discover a blood stain in the attic bedroom. So this bedroom is just full of evidence. So this led them to believe that this is where Edwina had died before being dragged down the stairs. In conclusion, investigators ultimately find no sign of forced entry into the home and nothing is known to be missing except one thing. Charles Rogers, Fred and Edwina's adult son, who Marvin had previously told police lived in the home as well. In fact, Charles owned the house. So where was he? That's the question. Where is he? It turns out when neighbors are questioned, they actually have no idea who Charles is either. Really? Yeah. They had never seen him and didn't even know that he lived there. So he just used that house as a... No, he, he lived there, but... He was a very secretive person and moved rather stealthily. Is yeah. that the word? I don't know how to say that. <laughs> so he would, he leaves like very early in the morning and would not come home until after dark. But it's not just the neighbors who are unaware of this. Almost no one knows that the 43-year-old had moved back in with his parents after becoming unemployed. See, Charles was reclusive, not just to the outside world, but in his personal life as well. He hadn't shared anything about his life with his parents or other family members. So they had no idea, like, who he even was. I mean, that was their son and they didn't know. They they didn't know who he was. So he wouldn't even speak to his parents face to face. Like, he would only speak to them with notes that he would slip under the attic door and, like, they would come up to check to see if he had any requests or anything to say to them. Okay. Yeah. So, despite his strangeness, Charles had also been quite successful in his lifetime. He had served in World War II, graduated with a degree in nuclear physics, and spent nine years working for Shell Oil as a seismologist. He was also a really talented and accomplished musician, which, you know, tells us why there were so many different instruments in the closet. But now, with his parents dead and him presumably being the only surviving member of the household and nowhere to be found, he can add being the prime suspect in this double homicide to his list of accomplishments. Much of the evidence found at the scene pointed directly at Charles, especially since most of it had been found in the attic, his bedroom. And with that, by 1.45 a.m. on June 24th, a massive manhunt is launched for Charles. Autopsies are performed on both Fred and Edwina a short time later, This reveals that the couple had been murdered three days before they were found on June 20th, which, shockingly enough, is Father's Day. Wow. Was Father's Day. (laughs) Was. Yeah. Edwina had been killed by a single gunshot to the head, but Fred's death was much more violent. He had been bludgeoned to death with the claw hammer found at the scene, and not only had his eyes been gouged out... His genitals were also removed and never recovered. I wonder if his relationship with him might have been a little more personal. That's why he went all out on him. You're exactly right. And we'll get to that. 
But yeah. he did something to him. Yeah. He didn't like it too much. You tend to see that, like, the more violent death, yeah. like, it's the more hatred. personal. Yeah. 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 It's exactly what it is. Days go by and law enforcement is no closer to tracking down Charles. But animals and curious citizens lead them to an awful smell rising from a sewer gate. This is where they find more of Fred and Edwina's body parts. Probably the ones that were flushed down the right. toilet because they were, like, yeah. in the sewer system. Yeah. So. I don't know what he was trying to do there. It was like the insides of their bodies. Oh, so like shit. all their like innards or whatever. Well, when we cut them up in pieces, her guts fell out and so he flushed yeah, them down the like, drain. Yeah. Oop, yeah. There you go. <laughs> flushed down the toilet. Back to the fishies. But- I don't think that he did it to hide it. Like, I don't think he was trying to hide anything. Like, I don't know. He tried to hide all them cuts on the table. And the oh, that's cloth. true. You're right. And, okay. I'm going to give you that one. You know. But, but he probably just didn't think anybody was going to go up in his house like that. So he didn't really think to yeah. keep anything Because secure. no, like, like aside from Edwina having the sales rep job, no one really spoke to them. So it's not like they would have been reported missing by anyone right. except for this guy, you know. Mm-hmm. But he only reported them missing after the co-worker said that Edwina hadn't been coming to the meetings. So yeah. what else, you know? So, as they review this apparent treasure trove of evidence that had, they had found at the Rogers home, they quickly get discouraged. Not one single weapon or tool had even the slightest fingerprint. They had completely been wiped clean. Aside so from he's the, cleaning his prints. And yeah. So. But aside, it's so weird because he left all the blood evidence. He left the, the tissue, the hair. That is it. weird. Why would you leave that but clean everything else? That's so It's weird. Yeah. And remember the bloody handprint that I said they found on the staircase? There was zero matches for that handprint. They could not find a match. What? Yes, no matter what they did. And, and of course, now they've reached a dead end. Okay. This is when they decide they're going to start digging even further into Charles's past. They don't know anything about this guy. No one knows anything about his past. Yeah. So, you know, they try to use, like, the information they found in his closet. Like, there was documents in there. They tried to use that information to track him down, see where he would have gone. They visited, like, a bunch of addresses he had listed on old tax forms. They reviewed any licenses he currently held. And then they, they, came up with this, they came up with the knowledge that Charles had previously been a pilot in World War II. Oh, yeah. wow. So, they, so he has combat experience. Yeah. He has, he's very, like, de- he's described as very, very, very intelligent. Like, oh, yeah. obviously, he's been... He's, he's got the, a little social awkwardness, yeah. but he's very smart. Yeah, he's very smart. He he, he's do, very accomplished. Yeah. He has a lot of talents. Um, but they checked the records of airfields in the area to see if he had possibly left by plane. But they find absolutely no leads when they do this. No matter what they do, it feels as though Charles has completely vanished off the face of the earth. Weeks turn into months, and months turn into years, and the case is at a complete standstill. By 1972, the Rogers' empty Houston home is torn down, and then three years later, Charles Roger is legally declared dead. And that's basically just so that estate, like his estate where the house was, can be probated. Right. And used for something else. Yeah. So this is basically where the case ends. (laughs) That's it. He's dead. That's basically it. Yeah, Yeah. He's legally dead. So, yeah. And it's with no conclusion. And that's why I literally hate unsolved murders. I hate it. I hate it because you don't, you don't know. No other suspects have ever been named in the murders of Fred and Edwina. Edwina, sorry. I'm positive Charles did it. Yeah. Everyone knows he did it. It's just, where is he? That's the question again. 
But since the murders took place, many people have tried to solve this bizarre case. Not just the murder itself, but the mystery of what happened. Not why, but what happened to Charles? Where did he go? A theory that was first raised in the book, The Man on the Grassy Knoll, claims that Charles had been a secret CIA agent who, yeah, who participated in the assassination of President JFK. What? Yeah, Dang. two years before the murder of his parents. Mm. The authors of this book claim that Charles, along with two others, were the three tramps that were seen in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas, on November 22nd, 1963, directly after the assassination of JFK. Yeah. It's said that Charles' parents were tracking his phone calls and discovered some of his diary entries, one that proved his involvement in the assassination and that this is what led him to kill them before fleeing to Guatemala. Since it's almost 100% a sure thing that Charles killed his parents, then just dropped off the face of the earth, leaving virtually no trace of where he could be, it almost seems plausible that he could have had the secret life of a CIA agent. Yeah. He fucking, yeah. Not to mention, Charles lived in Houston, and that's only, give or take, about four hours. From Dallas, Dallas. Texas, yeah. So. Yeah, I I think he probably did have something to do with JFK's. So he participated in it, right? And Houston ain't that far away from Dallas, Texas. Exactly. So, could be. That's crazy. Yeah. Actually. I mean, if, if if they know his secrets, I mean... And he was a secret CIA, so he's got skill. He's, yeah. He's not dumb. If he was. We don't know that for sure, but that's just a theory. I mean, it, it's, it could be plausible for sure. But a less bizarre theory posed in a book called The Icebox Murders comes from Hugh and Martha Gardner. I'm sorry if I'm not saying that right. A Houston couple who began investigating the murders in 1997. They were trying to do their own investigation. They are were like so invested in mm-hmm. this. They wanted to know what happened. Yeah. The gardeners. Uh, I'm just going to call them the G's, honestly. <laughs> saying it right. They believe that Charles murdered his parents because he had endured a life of emotional and physical abuse at the hands of them. And that's a pattern, too. We see a yeah. lot of children that grow up and do stuff like this mm-hmm. because it's sad. Yeah. Now, it's said that Fred and Edwina had apparently taken loans out in Charles's name and robbed him of his life savings. Now, as a parent, that's just effed up. Like, you don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that to your child. Yeah. Much of the supposed physical abuse had come from Fred, though, and that would explain why Fred had gotten murdered so much more violently than Edwina. That would make a lot of sense because Fred was the abuser. Mm-hmm. He was physically and emotionally abusive to Charles yeah. in this theory. Mm-hmm. So that would make a lot of sense. He showed so much just in that killing. It shows like how much resentment and hatred he had towards his dad. He goes his eyes out. Exactly. Yeah. Cut his genitals off. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's you got to really like not like somebody yeah. to do that. Yeah. In my opinion. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I can't think like that. Now... <laughs> The G's say once Charles murdered his parents, he then used connections he had within the Shell Company to flee to Mexico. Remember, he had worked there for nine years. So he probably had a lot of connections within that company. In this theory, they say that Charles, too, was murdered with a pickaxe. Pickaxe or pickaxe? Pickaxe or pickaxe? No, I'm just saying it wrong. (laughs) I don't know why I keep trying to add that extra letter in there. Hold on, what's a (laughs) pickaxe? You know what I'm trying to say. With a pickaxe by miners in Honduras. I think I'm saying that right. Yeah. So what do you think about 
this theory of him going to Mexico and getting murdered there. I mean, I don't know. Like the first theory we just talked about, and then this theory, it's like so different. I think I like the first theory a lot better because. Yeah, and I, I honestly, I, I don't doubt that his parents were, you know, abusing him. I don't doubt that at all. Not at all. You robbed him of his life savings. You know, they they were kind of. But also, like, I tend to believe both theories. Maybe there was a little, maybe there's a little mixture of both in there. So he was never found again. No, he's still never been found. Yeah. Um, but, but here's the thing. There was all, it was also said that Edwina had been forging Charles' signature for a long time. Like, loans, um, taking out liens on the house that he owned, the one they were living in. That wasn't their house. So she had been forging his signature to get money, like, on, in very different, in all these different ways. And his dad, Fred, like I said, was, I said this at the beginning, he was, a gambling addict basically so yeah this led to money issues in general mm-hmm. and within the relationship and i'm sure that fueled the arguments between the three of them yeah but i don't know it's a crazy crazy story that's... and like no ending so you i don't know like it, that's what drives me crazy about stories like this because i want to know where yeah. like where is he what happened why did he do it like, you just want all those answers, mm-hmm. and you can't have them, and, that, and it just drives you crazy. Right. But that is the story of the Icebox murders. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. I guess it was a good uh, kicker for our first episode. We'll be back with more. Yes, for sure. Time. You can also listen to more stories on my TikTok account. I will have that linked in the description box. And I guess that's all for today. <laughs> awesome. All right, bye. Bye.